Hi, everybody. How are you? My name is Luke Thomas, and uh, this is the Luke Thomas live chat right here on my YouTube channel episode. What is it today? I think today is 32, something like that. I'm the host of the Luke Thomas show on Sirius XM. Uh, oh, you know what? This is out of focus. Here we go. There we go. Uh, I'm the host of the Luke Thomas show, Sirius XM channel 156, Monday to Friday. I think I'm still a little bit out of focus. Let me do this a little bit better. Uh, let's see. I'm the ho half the host of Morning Combat on Showtime Digital. Information for that all in the description box. We are well past time to start. So without further ado, let us get things going, shall we? All right. Got a little Powerade today. I'll have booze later, but I don't want to get into it right now. Uh, happy fr God damn it, this fucking thing. Happy Friday to everybody. Hope we're doing well. Happy to be here. A uh, lot to get to. Tomorrow the fights are on, bitches. Tomorrow the fights are on. Uh, UFC 249 is, I'm guessing, at the top of everyone's uh, desirability to talk about. Uh, by the way, while we're doing this, uh, give the video a uh, thumbs up. Subscribe to the channel. I had someone write me being like, what's the best way you could help? Dude, share this around. Share this content. Like, recommend it to friends. There's nothing like word of mouth. It's the best marketing in the world. So, please recommend it to people. Yes, thumb, thumbing it up matters. Subscribing matters. Share it around. Share it around. It's the best thing you can do. All right. Without further ado, let's get to your questions if we can. And again, I appreciate everyone's patience while uh, I had to make sure everything was set up properly. So, my Ethernet wasn't showing up. I had to reset everything. But I fixed it. And here we are. Okay. I always put the questions in the community tab post 24 hours ahead of time. We'll do a bunch of them. All right. Let's get to them now. First one up. Luke Dom is a wrestler and Cejudo is a wrestler. In striking one is an evasive counterpuncher. The latter potentially a brawler. I don't know if it's fair to call Cejudo a brawler. He's sort of a come forward puncher. It's not the same thing as a brawler. Similar cardio, so then technically who holds the advantage over the other? I would not say that they have the same cardio. I would say Dom has the better cardio. You know, it's funny. I was looking at the odds. They're not that bad against Dominic. They're not. Uh, they're the worst that they've ever been for him as an underdog in a comeback fight. So he was favored heavily to beat Mizugaki. He was, I think, sl uh, slight underdog against Dillashaw. He's doubled that against Cejudo. With good reason. He's 35 years old now. He's not what he once was in terms of uh, that kind of a dynamic threat. I just got done on my radio show talking about this. Uh, so if, at the risk of repeating myself too much, I apologize. But to me, this is really kind of interesting. To me, and again, we'll have to see how this bears itself out. Cruz, if you go back and you watch the Demetrius Johnson fight, which is you know a long time ago. Demetrius is really different now. And that was up a weight class. But I was there. That was in D.C. I was there for that fight. He kind of held his own on the feet for long stretches of it. Uh, there were moments, obviously, that's, that Cruz was better. Uh, long stretches for him, too. But the point being was, you know, it was relatively even on the feet. The real big differentiator was that Cruz was able to secure the takedown and not really get it, but then hold top position for various amounts of time, sort of accruing the MMA unofficial equivalent of riding time. And so, consequently, that was it's that it's that mixing up of the two, and that makes his striking more dynamic because is the knee tap coming? Is it not coming? That kind of a thing. So to me, it's like he's he, I'm going to compare him to Frankie Edgar, which is to say the following: 
Cruz has his own system of footwork, his own setups, his own style of punching, the whole nine yards. But insofar as it is concerned that in order for Cruz to fully make use of his strikes, the wrestling threat has to be a component either in the sense that it is such a live threat that it it confuses or disarms the opposition or, as you saw in the Demetrius Johnson fight, he, he was literally able to get the takedown and then hold top position. And, you know, even in the Garbrandt fight, go back and watch the Garbrandt fight, dude. He was able to get the takedown. He just couldn't hold it. Uh, Garbrandt is a true bantamweight, you know, and so that was probably part of it as well. But to me, the other part here is, dude, if you look at Dom's entries on takedowns, oh, my God, dude. The timing is ugh, impeccable. Impeccable. He knows exactly when to shoot. He knows exactly that moment. Brilliant. So the key is, if he can get that takedown and hold it, and that's a thing that a ostensibly smaller Cejudo has trouble dealing with. Because, dude, on the feet, I mean, think about some of the flurries that Garbrandt was able to manufacture, waiting on him, s setting a wide angle, anticipating it, and then throwing back, and then doing it in flurries, backing up crews. You know, that hand speed from, from Garbrandt is impressive. I would imagine Cejudo, at a you know, guy who fought at 125, I'm, I'm imagining he can match it. And if he can match it, that's a problem for Dominic. So it's not that you couldn't strike. I mean, he's, he'll set those, like, southpaw angles, and he'll come and he'll come out. He'll get his moments. But to me, if the wrestling – and he averages, I think, you know, three takedowns per 15 minutes. So one around. One per, more than one per round, if you actually look at the numbers. You don't have that, then the whole thing kind of falls apart. It's like uh, Max versus um, Edgar. Edgar wasn't really out of it against Max, but if the takedown wasn't there and he just has to work on the striking, it's good striking. It's not like it's bad. It's just not the same dynamic threat as it otherwise would be. Sorry, I'm very thirsty. It is hot in this room. All right. Uh, who out of the two in Saturday's main event would be the harder challenge for Khabib? Okay, so I have asked everybody about this, and I've gotten different answers. Um, I guess we'll have to look. We can't really answer this until we see how Saturday goes. Because here's something I'm, I'm interested in. Let's say that Justin wins, and if Justin wins, I suspect it'll be early. If Justin wins, and I, I'm sort of leaning towards Tony winning, but... I got to tell you, Justin, Jesus, man, he's such a threat. His ability to weave inside now and um, change angles as he, not really angles, change stances as he does it and then confuse you about going low and then coming over the top. And he hits very hard. Dude, if he's able to do that to Tony, Tony's going to have some real problems on his hands. Let's assume for a second that works. It might not, but let's just say. If that were to work, and so he's able to get past Tony, part of me feels like Justin would be. And the reason why, if you think about it, is like we all keep asking, what is the kind of fighter that beats Nurmagomedov, right? Who is that? What is that prototype? Part of me wonders if it is, you know, is it a guy like Tony who's so well-rounded and a guy like Nurmagomedov's never been cut, so even if he gets taken down, Tony's slashing him with the elbows? Maybe. Maybe that's it. 
But part of me wonders if Justin is the best answer because Justin is almost the opposite of Nurmagomedov. Justin is six fights into his UFC career and hasn't attempted a single takedown, hasn't attempted a single submission. He just wants to light you up on the feet. And he has good takedown, very good takedown defense. Now, if that takedown defense doesn't hold, the show is over quickly for him, right? Because I'm told that, like, <laughs> Justin doesn't, I mean, you can ask him what the truth is. I'm told he doesn't train a lot on the ground, like on the ground, like transitions and wrestling and stuff, yes. But, like, hey, work off your back and let's see your arm bars from the guard or something. I'm told that's not a real component of his training. So if it got to the point where he had real trouble getting off of his back, getting to his hands and knees, standing up, and he was constantly getting taken back down, then the whole show collapses instantly almost. But let's say Justin could stop the takedowns. He would be the yin and yang, essentially, to Nurmagomedov, right? Because Nurmagomedov doesn't really want to strike but for particular scenario's sake. And really wants to do, get you down, pass on top, beat you up. And he has a whole game built around you trying to get up and then breaking you back down. And then that, you know, the quicksand that's they're in. Justin's game is literally the opposite. It's like, I, I have just enough use for wrestling to do the opposite of what Nurmagomedov wants. Part of me wonders if that's the guy to beat him. Somebody who, like, because how many guys are like, okay... If, he, if I get taken down by Khabib, I'm just going to get back to my feet. It's like, bro, that shit ain't working. That clearly does not work. Okay. Uh, or the other one. If I get taken down, I'm just going to submit him from my guard. But we just know in general, that's real low percentage. Just, just as a way to win in modern MMA, to win with submissions from your guard, it, it, it's, it, it happens, but it's very infrequent at the highest level. So it's like... Maybe that's it, but I don't know. I'm not overly convinced that's your greatest shot. What if it's the idea that we just don't play into that at all? Now, easier said than done, of course. But to me, if Justin can prove he's a better fighter than Tony, and maybe take down the fence will come into that, although that will tell you less about Khabib per se, but if he's just able to show he can dispatch with a fighter as gifted as Tony, one wonders if he's the better fighter uh, to beat Nurmagomedov. Maybe neither of them beat him. You know, maybe that's the other part too. It's like, well, one style might be better than the other, but neither can get the job done. You know, your guess is as good as mine in that regard, but I don't know. Let's see who wins on Saturday, and then let's make some uh, assessments about how they win and see if it tells us anything about Nurmagomedov. He's so unique that it might not, but nevertheless, it's worth waiting for this piece of information to make a, a, a broader decision. Does Dana White ban any media members for negative reporting on him trying to put on fights during the pandemic? I don't know. I've not applied for credentials, but um, they send me media report. They send me uh, press releases. I got invited to the conference call. Um, I've been in contact with some of the media folks there. If they are, if I have been, I'm not aware of it, but it's, is it possible? I don't know. I, I we'll, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Hi, Luke. Who is realistically worth talking about to fill Dana's role when he does part with UFC? Uh, I like the idea of Chael Sonnen. Chael would be a potentially good one, right? Because, I mean, he's 
at a, at a very smaller level, he's already done some promoting, right? He's already done the uh, uh, Submission Underground stuff. And, you know, I think his sense of how the business runs, he's very much got an executive's mindset. So he'd be a good one. Obviously, he can, he's got the gift of gab. Everyone knows that. He'd, be a, he'd probably be a decent fit. I mean, I'm not, there must be a, many other things that go into it that make Dana somewhat, or if not somewhat, very unique. But he's got some of the pieces there. I mean, anyone else who's done some high-level promoting could be, you know, a, a reasonable choice. Um, let me think. In today's MMA space, you know, a lot of the ones I grew up with just don't promote anymore. Um, you know, some of the guys who promote some of the small, I mean, people have said, what about Scott Coker? But I don't think Scott would ever get offered that job. Maybe I'm wrong. If he did, I don't know if he'd take it. Dana's unique. He's unique. But just sort of see who else is promoting in the space. And and I think that would be probably just the way they might go. Uh, how would a prime Chris Weidman and Luke Rockhold do against the current top five middleweights? I tend to believe in their prime. Chris and Luke were the two most skilled middleweights ever, or at least top three. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. It's funny, right? Chris Weidman was like, you know, I'm a bad matchup for Adesanya. And it's like, he got lambasted for it, and I don't agree that he is now. But, you know, several years ago, might he have been? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's all that crazy. It's just not true now. Now it's something totally different. Uh, let me see who's the top five middle. Let's see. Let's look. Let's have a look at it, shall we? The rankings are so bad. Um, okay, middleweight. So Adesanya is a champion. Um, I think Adesanya would do well against Luke Rockhold. Although Luke's got good wrestling and you know good, really good jujitsu. So there's that too. Still, I, I like Adesanya's chances. Uh, again, we're talking about guys in their prime. Whitaker would be an interesting one. Paulo Costa, I think, would do well against both, I think. Cannoneer, I'm not as convinced. Romero, we saw how well he was able to do, so that one's over and done with. Uh, and then Till. Till's still a work in progress. Yeah, I mean, they'd be very competitive with a lot of them. You know, what Luke Rockhold did really well was he was just fleet of foot, super well-rounded, used his length well. He wasn't especially awesome in, 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 in anything, but he was very, very good in most things. Super underrated on the ground. That was a big component for him. You know, the Tim Boach, I think it was in Baltimore, right, where he had the upside-down triangle. I mean, he had a lot of things, a reverse triangle. He had a lot of things going for him. And then Weidman, when he was crap, I mean, that elbow, elbow he slashed Munoz with, I mean, stuff like that where he was just, you know, taking away boxing range from guys who were used to boxing, so to speak, with their striking and then just slashing them inside the elbow range. And then, of course, he had the great takedowns, and he was just, you know, very, very good on top. This is the guy that has a purple belt, gave Gal Galvan all he could handle in the ADCC match. Like, he was really, really talented. But also, part of it is, you know, they were very good to beat the guys of their era. The game has advanced very, very quickly. I think Adesanya's takedown defense, folks are like, oh, it's not that great. It's very good. It's very good. Um, and it gets better every single time he gets out there. It's, it's, it's only going to get better. Bohashinia is just a brute powerhouse. You saw how he was able to handle Yoel. Cannoneer, I think, is a little, little bit long in the tooth and good at many things, but hasn't proven himself at this stage against the very, very elite of that division. Time will tell. 
and then you're well as you're well. And then Darren Till is still kind of, a, 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 you know, um, a work in progress. I would say that they could beat any of those guys maybe on their best day, but in pro- in general, pro- very competitive and would be inside that top five space. I don't know that they would be the best two, but, you know, if you missed the prime of Chris Weidman, it was exciting. If you missed the prime of Luke Rockhold, it was exciting. They were very, very good fighters. I don't think that question is at all bad. Hi, Luke, what do you do if you were Tony Ferguson and you just beat Gaethje, yet UFC gave next title shot to Connor? <laughs> Nothing. Uh, what are they going to do? I mean, this is this question that gets put up every time. What are, what, what are you going to do? The industry is stacked against you. Okay, so you can you can pitch a fit on social media and in interviews. Okay, maybe that maybe that moves the needle. Um, you can do nothing and just accept it. You can uh, refuse to fight until you know you get the next title shot or what or whatever they do with you. You can I mean. You can do whatever you want, but your options are basically to uh, to eat the shit sandwich and like it, eat the shit sandwich and don't like it, but basically do it, or just not eat the shit sandwich, but now you can't be in the restaurant. Like, the, you don't have options. These are your options, essentially. Uh, the, the equation will change a little bit if you're McGregor and you're that much of a needle mover where you are truly transcendent. Okay, well, then the conversation gets a little bit different. But for virtually everybody else, there is no option. You, you know, you can, you can, you have choices, but they're all basically different forms of bad and self-sabotaging. So my hunch is you pitch a fit, you get the fans on your side, maybe you get a raise out of it, small one, some, some kind of minor concession that feels like it's something. And this is not a shot of Tony in any capacity. It's like, dude, I, none of the industry... I put out a video not too long ago on my Instagram page, and I say this all the time. You know, it's amazing to me that, you know, well, I guess it's not. People are just going to get mad for for candor, but this is how I view the sport right now. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you when I think about how to do coverage, not so much as a journalist, but as a media member. The first thing you always have to remember is the fighter is going to bear the most burden of any stakeholder in a in a scenario almost exclusively, not every, but almost every time, right? The, the, they are the least empowered group of all the groups, right? They're not the commission that can just make rules and has the power of government behind them. They're not sponsors who are very finicky, can often be fly by night and often work with promoters to identify talent. Um, they can back out of deals. They're very one-sided, in many cases, they don't even end up paying managers who appear to think that their job is not the fiduciary responsibility to their client, but how do I get something for my client by being a suck up and a leech and barnacle on the promoter's ass? And then there's the promotion itself, which even if you think they are acting in good faith and they very well might be, there just are no federal protections or uh, any kind of... uh, institutions to protect their interests they have nothing they have nothing so in every case almost not always but in virtually every case they're going to be here if you view if you understand mma 
to be that, to that to drive your coverage, everything begins to fall into place and make so much more sense about everything. Now, how you can get these like damaged relationships where managers love working with the UFC at the expense of their client, well, that's a lot of just really damaged um, thinking that happens, and it's a lot of just inherited practice, and that's really bad and toxic, but it is the way that it is, at least for now, until something changes. So you ask, what would you do? What, <laughs> what could you do? Uh, maybe, maybe somebody could get creative with some kind of I'll, I'll show them campaign. But in general, there is nothing you will do because there is nothing that you can do. You will just grin and bear it like everybody else does. Because the way that the sport works is that, is that in every scenario, the fighters are going to get the worst treatment and everything is going to roll downhill. We have this event going on this weekend. Brian Campbell asked Dana White about UFC 249 to what extent they were trying to bail out Endeavor or help not bail out in the specific way in which you know, Congress bails out other industries, but certainly to, to financially assist the parent company. And he denied it had any role. And yet you look at some of the reasons why they had this $300 million dividend that was going to go to Endeavor, and then they decided to not give them the 150 and they kept the 150. Um, we're speculating here. I do not know this for a fact, but if you had a scheduled $150 million payment to an industry, to, to a rather an entity, and you decided not to, and you decided not to at a moment when they really needed it, that raises some serious questions. That To me, the likeliest answer is that it makes much more sense if you have a revenue-generating entity from a live events business that you own when all of your, most of your, all of your, uh, most of your other, I should say, live event businesses are not working. This is a really important, piece of the puzzle because UFC is a very successful, well-run business uh, to keep them running as a way to not have layoffs, but more than that, as a way to just sort of how do you move through a pandemic when you have all these extra costs? You're not getting pay-per-views from the bars this weekend. You have all this extra safety protocol, blah, blah, blah. It's like very, very expensive to do. But if you do all those things, you get real serious revenue generation on the other end. They're not doing it to lose money. They're doing it to make money, right? Which of course is, is fine. But this is my point. This idea like, oh, this is about letting the fighters fight. Well, yes, everyone wants to. There's dignity in work, and everybody wants that, and that's a respectable thing. But, and I'm sure that UFC would undertake some kind of aggressive schedule in this situation no matter what. But let's just be real about it. A, it has to be that a key driving force is... Uh, this relationship to Endeavor, which means what's really driving all of this are these high-level considerations that have nothing to do with the fighters. I mean, in the end, they might benefit depending on one's perspective, or they may not. Certainly, there's a risk associated with travel and blah, blah, blah. We've been over this a million times, but um, but that's, that's, to me, principally what the situation is, or at least a huge chunk of it. It's not about what's happening down here. The, these are merely... Um, the last consideration that's going into this the strategy. Always remember that's how it works. Fighter gets some kind of issue. They have to go before a commission. What rights do they have? Why do you think they get down there on bended knee and genuflect before them and tell them such great things and to put on the waterworks? Because, dude, they don't have any appeals process short of taking them to court, which is a long shot and expensive, and no one has the money to because... By the way, they're ritually underpaid. So you ask what you would do. Nothing. Because there's nothing you can do. That's the way the industry works. And so anyone who tells you otherwise, you better ask for some receipts on their evidence. 
If you had a week to train a Joe Blow off the street to fight an MMA fight against another Joe Blow, what would you think would be the single most important technique to teach them? That dim mock player. Um, striking offense or defense, wrestling offense or defense, BJJ, something else. Honestly, I'd probably striking offense. And in a way where if you've got two donks who are just totally average, the one donk who's got a few tricks up his sleeve, who like got to work first. Like usually, dude, if you ever seen a street fight, usually the first punch that lands ends it. Not not always, but more commonly than not. If not the first one, then the second or the third behind the first one. Really, it's like you land one good shot and the shit's over, you know? So you would teach them to just, like, my, my rule would be go all in, go all in early, get in their face, teach them a way to get inside and bomb on them and just stay in their face until they go away. Which, by the way, could backfire, they could miss, they could lose, and then they gas out and then the guy takes them over whoops their ass. But, you know. Playing the playing the probability game, I suppose I'd go that way. Hi, Luke. With no gate money coming in the foreseeable future, would it be reasonable for UFC to renegotiate their pay-per-view contract with ESPN? Would depend entirely on the terms of the contract, would it not? And I suspect that ESPN would say it's not our fault. Uh, and I don't think that the gate has anything to do with their relationship to ESPN. Dude, ESPN and UFC must love each other right now. Because, I said this before, in the month of April, they took in $650 million from your Comcasts and your DirecTVs and everybody else. And they turned in a whopping fuck all for sports. And so here comes UFC being like, hey, we got the governor and we got the, the mayor and the commissions on board and... We're going to be able to pump out three events over the course of eight days. Are you all happy? They must be like, yes, sir. This is exactly what we need um, to avoid their own issues with these MSOs. So um, I don't know that the gate has anything to do with it. But uh, but they, they're not adversarial with each other. They need each other right now. Like In the supply chain of how the money gets allotted, you know, UFC having ESPN to have money and then ESPN having these relationship with, again, your your dishes, your direct TVs and everybody else, Comcast, whatever. That's they, they, they need that system to keep running for this whole thing to work. So if UFC can get out there and start pumping this out and let's say that there is a contagion effect, no pun intended, where, oh, golf says we can do this and NASCAR, I think NASCAR is coming back pretty soon or something like that. And then, you know, all the other sports get going again. That's what they want. That, that, would, that would be right in their wheelhouse. That would be exactly what they want. All right, let me make sure this is working right. Yes. Okay, good. Very good. Uh, okay. Hi, Luke. What is your favorite fight Dominic Cruz has called cage side in regards to his analysis? Ooh, what a good question. I'm not sure I can answer that one. Um... Wow. Was it um, was it one of Woodley's fights where he was talking about Woodley backing up, looking like it's a bad idea, but instead what he's doing is setting the range? It might have been the fight with uh, Woodley and Usman. If I, I think he called that one. I think that's right. Um, but I don't know. That's a good question, you know. 
because of his broadcasting style, he's not as memorable in that way, which I think for some is a knock on him. And I say I learned from him. I can't recall any particular one fight, which seems to undercut the position. But instead, it just it just reminds you he has not had an iconic call in that way. Um, that's a good one. I'd have, I'd have, you know what? It's a great question. I'd have to think about that one more. Uh, if Connor is able to put in a performance similar to the one he put in against Eddie Alvarez, while being much more acclimated to his new weight, so I'm assuming you mean 170, how would he fare in a likely matchup against Jorge Masvidal? Okay, so this is an interesting one, right? Let me move over here. See how everything's going. Yeah, it looks good. Okay. Um, there we go. Better. Okay. Uh, it's a good question. So here's the thing that I would say. Um, first of all, I've, I saw some people being like, oh, we got a different plan for Jorge. And then people being upset when they said Connor might be it. I'm like, why would you be upset at that? To me, that was the fight they should have made to begin with. Okay, but we don't need to litigate that again. Let's assume that they just do. When you say acclimated to the new weight, you got to ask yourself what that means. Does that mean, like, the what's the very best gas tank you've ever seen from Connor? And the answer would not be one where he just, you know, beat Eddie Alvarez and didn't get winded. I mean, where he got tested. So the answer is going to be what? Probably the second Diaz fight or something like that, right? Maybe you could say the Holloway fight where even he was injured or something, something like that. But I'm going to say the second Diaz fight. Which is to say, if that's the upper bound limit of his cardio or something kind of close to that, it's not great. Uh, Jorge is not going to gas. He's going to be able to go five rounds, no problem, every single time. So that's going to be a bad matchup for him in that sense, no matter what. I tend to think that they're probably similar hard hitters. Uh, the one thing that goes very much in Connor's favor is, like every time, he's going to start out strong. And Jorge is not so Jorge is not like bad as a starter, but that's not his bread and butter. He's better in like the if if you divide a fight into thirds, he's his strongest act is usually the middle act. That's the historically the way it's been. Starts off a little slow, really takes over in the middle, and then sometimes when he's had those split decision losses, kind of dropped off at the end. Um, but that middle act, it, you know, that would be a big problem for Connor as well. So it'd be a, it'd be a benefit for Connor early and a problem for him in the middle. In terms of their striking styles, I tend to think Connor's just sort of trickiness early, his ability to play with weapons from one side and the diversity of them is a lot for anyone to handle. I mean, he would probably put it on Jorge kind of early. The question is, how well could he sustain the effort? I, I, that, that's where the things begin to get a bit of a departure for me and where Jorge would really potentially take over. All this is terribly speculative, of course, but... Um, similar to the one he had against Eddie Alvarez. Well, I mean, if you're saying... Well, the question is weird, right? Because you're saying if he were able to put on a performance like Eddie Alvarez. Well, the performance he had against Eddie Alvarez means that why are you asking me how he would do against Jorge? I think you mean, forget all that. If he was really settled into 170, how would he fare? And remember, Jorge is not the biggest 170-er either. But remember, Jorge can also wrestle. He's got very good jiu-jitsu. Skills win fights the majority of the time, and Jorge is overall more skilled. There are individual pieces of the game that Connor is much better at. As I mentioned, early starter, he's going to be a real handful with his trickery from the left side. That's going to be a big problem for Jorge. But if he can survive that, and he has shown an ability to survive that, he is, I mean, unless you're Toby Yamada with your upside down triangles, he's very, very, very hard to put away. Very hard to put away. 
So at 170, I'm not sure how much his power translates up there either. Jorge's kind of has. Um, so we'll see. So we'll see. But I would lean Jorge. Can you bring Technique Talk back as a segment of your YouTube channel? Doesn't have to be often and regular. It was so good and brought so much insight and knowledge. I miss it. Well, so the answer is yes and no. The term Technique Talk is owned by Vox Media now. So that is theirs. I do not own it. Nor can I claim it. Um, but the spirit of what that was, where I would talk, talk Technique Theory with somebody. I mean, you basically got that yesterday. Did you all see my Brad Riddell uh, uh, interview where he broke down the striking of Ferguson and Gaethje. Uh, great interview. Really learned a lot from him. I always learn a lot from from smart people who have interesting things to say, as do we all. And it's basically that kind of a thing. It doesn't have the same label on it, but that's basically what it is. So I can do what you're asking for as a function of the content. As a function of the name, I no longer own it. So there you go. Do you think the lack of an audience will impact certain fighters' performances? Izzy and McGregor seem to shine when the lights are brightest, yet others under these conditions seem to falter. With an empty arena for the foreseeable future, will fighters that feed off that energy suffer? And in turn, will others who struggle with the bright lights perform better? A recent example that comes to mind is Eddie versus Connor, which I feel would have been a closer fight if it had taken place in an empty arena. Very speculative to wonder that, but... Yeah, I think certain fighters, when the crowd is in their favor and it pumps them up and it intimidates their opponent, not so much because the crowd is saying things, but because you can just feel all the energy against you, that will probably have some impact. I don't suspect that's going to be a big case with anyone on this card because, remember, remember there's a drop-off in star power. So this is not Nurmagomedov fighting in Brooklyn with you know a lot of, of Russians cheering him on. Again, he might be able to perform no matter what, but I'm just saying um, this is not a Brazilian fighting a non-Brazilian in Brazil hearing Vimo Hair and all that kind of stuff. You've got Tony and you've got Justin, fan favorites either way. You've got Dominic and you've got Henry, who uh, people may not like Henry as much, or maybe they do, it's really hard to tell, but neither is like the biggest star. And so it's a bit of a wash there. And then down the card, it just sort of goes the way that it goes. You've got Pettis and you've got Cerrone, but both are kind of favored. Cerrone probably more so, but again, to a, some kind of dramatic, tense degree, it, it doesn't affect anyone this time. I think your question is right in the sense that there's going to be a scenario where we're going to see that it does, and then we're going to have to react accordingly. Like the people really missed it. They missed surfing off of that. You know, Connor has, uh, I think this was discussed on today's scrum with Dana White, Connor's an interesting scenario, right? Because in addition to having some of his chances buoyed by how the crowd could potentially impact an opponent, on top of that, if you have Connor fight and there's no gate, I mean, you're just giving up $10 million or more every time. And so it's like, do you kind of wait for that to get back? Like, how does that go? So there's a lot of factors there. Um, and there's going to be a correlation between high gate receipts and people who benefit from the the impact of the crowd right there's, there's a clear connection there so so in general i wouldn't worry about it for this weekend i definitely would not worry about it but there's going to come a time where you're gonna look back and say uh, maybe definitely maybe 
Where do you see things going for Leon Edwards? Seeing how Woodley is being booked very soon and more than likely it'll be against Burns. Yeah, dude. Feel for Leon Edwards because I thought that was his breakout moment. BT Sport had put together that phenomenal piece of marketing for him. And if you beat a guy like Tyron Woodley, who, by the way, somehow the rankings still have as the number one contender at a welterweight. It's not a knock on Tyron as a fighter. He is one of the best, four best welterweights ever. But if you've not competed since March of 2019 and others have and have been winning in many cases, you don't deserve to be the number one contender. That's just the way that it doesn't mean that you're not, you can't beat them, but it's just contendership is a function of recent success and activity. Anyway, neither here nor there. But Tyron had a big name. And this was a big main event. This was his coming out party. And I've been sort of critical of how he's been handled in terms of being a media entity. But he has even addressed a lot of those concerns more recently. He's been a little bit more active on social. He's been a little bit more active in interviews. And it's I think it's beginning to pay off. People are starting to pay attention to his chances. And, you know, as a fighter to take seriously. Um, that's great. That was a big opportunity for him. And now, who the hell knows what's going to... Like, to me... The states are going to open up here relatively soon in very uneven ways. Some are going to have uh, a great ability to control for the virus. Some are not. It's going to be uneven. The overall picture will probably be some kind of status quo thing or whatever. Like it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be universally good, universally bad. It's going to be a mixed bag in a lot of different ways, and probably for a lot of different reasons. But that means that the UFC is going to have a degree of flexibility. I think at least in terms of the contiguous United States, to move around and do things. But international borders, that's where it's going to get kind of crazy. Now, they might be able to make an exception for a McGregor on a private flight here or a Nurmagomedov on a private flight there. But at scale, getting UK, Irish, you know, uh, mainland Europe fighters to go where they need to go, Asian countries too. I mean, yeah, South Korea is doing well. Taiwan's doing well whatever, but getting in and out of there, how was how that going to go? That, that's, to, or Vietnam's doing well, same thing. How, how, you know, there's a lot of really weird pieces to all this that, that's very, very hard to predict. And so these guys like Leon Edwards, who were right on the cusp of a big breakout, man, I don't know what to do about that. If the UFC has resources in the UK, um, like they've got, they've got, referees they can use and there's judges they can use and they've got staff over there and they've got uh, a cage over there and a production facility and equipment like they don't have to fly all that over there and then they can stage fights independently of that through maybe parts of Europe as parts of Europe open up or something like that maybe then but dude yeah he's been hit he's been hit uniquely hard by this because this was his coming out party and it's by by virtue of luck, essentially, that U.S.-based fighters work for a U.S.-based company, and so they're going to have the benefit of activity. It, it, I really feel for Leon because he's an incredibly talented guy. He was on a hot streak, and he did everything he could. By no fault of his own, he finds himself on the outside looking in quite literally. Long-ass question here. Can you take a moment to clarify a fighter's reach stat? For example, Ferguson has a 76-inch reach compared to Gaethje at 7D. I'd like to say then that Ferguson has a whopping 6-inch reach advantage over Gaethje, but isn't this a bit misleading? Shouldn't the stat be halved or simply measure arm length to better illustrate the actual functional reach advantage in a fight, not to mention finger length? It seems um, 
Would finger length matter all that much if you're rolling it back? I suppose. It seems the full wingspan metric inflates the comparison and sometimes fuels unworthy dialogue. Um, I don't think that's exactly true. Um, so it says uh, reach is BS. It's from fingertip to fingertip, which includes the shoulder width. Right, which is true. But you have to understand something. Um, it is a very imprecise way to measure. I think that part is true. That's a fair criticism. But you also have to understand that the very best analysts uh, know how to contextualize it. So Ferguson has a six-inch reach advantage. He does throw more often than he used to. We had Rashad Holloway on the on the channel. I put him on the uh, I put him on I put his interview on the on my on my here. His interview was up. He says, but the boxing coach of Tony. Tony throws more linear punches than he used to. He is rangy with it. Um, he does make use of whatever perceived advantage that you might have. But when you say, oh, we have to get a more nuanced version, I, I'm not even disputing that you could, but you have to propose something and then we have to see how it plays out. Here's what I mean. The best analysts know that like um, there could be, a, let's say, a six-inch disparity between two fighters, but they are going to look at fight style to what extent it is implemented, what kind of weapons do they use? Do they have a jab? Do they sit behind it? Do they angle off of it? Do they use that for underhooking? Like, for example, John Jones has a significant reach advantage, and it's so important to note because of the way he does and, 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 and uses it, and it makes you know a, a dramatic difference. All this is to say, if you see two people with a two-inch reach advantage, no one really says a whole lot about it. If it's three or four, you usually have a set of things you might be looking for because that's the point where... Um, a difference in reach can present itself and then five or six it becomes significant depending on the set of opponent or the set of um, tools that they use because that would then if you really were gifted at keeping someone off of you or connecting first it really go to tell you the story in other words people have kind of built into their brain however imprecise the measurement when they see those numbers they begin to look for and evaluate different things so I wouldn't be opposed to a better system of measurement if once we got that, the reason why it was better was because it actually told us about who is better about making range effective for their purposes. And so then you need to figure out, because just saying, oh, well, your reach is not actually 76. It's, let's say, 65 because you had some other different kind of measurement. Okay, but what's that really telling us? Right? Like what, what, what do we learn now by learning it's not actually 76, it's 65. Oh, it's not actually um, 70, it's 60, uh, 60 flat, something like that. What, what do we learn by that? Okay, it's still, you still have a five-inch reach advantage uh, under this new system. But did we learn anything new about what this system tells us in terms of accuracy? Maybe, maybe not. You've, you've lessened it, but maybe the impact is still great or it didn't... In other words, you need to have a system where if you're going to change how it's measured, it's because that measurement, once you see it, confers, uh, enables you to understand how that impacts each particular fight. So by all means, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly uh, all ears, but I would need to hear and see it. How do, uh, how do you think Khabib would do in a submission grappling event like ADCC? Probably pretty well. You know, it's funny. Javier was like, he's never been submitted at AKA, which I find very hard to believe. 
I'm not definitely, I'm definitely not accusing Javier of lying. It's just, that's such, it's like even the very, like even Hodger Gracie loses in practice. Like even Gordon Ryan loses in practice. Hamalova Hall, like all these guys, Cabrinha, they, they all lose in practice. Um, Marcelo Garcia, you know, so it's like never, like that sounds like you're not going against the right guys or something. So my hunch is he'd probably be very competitive, but I also wonder how much of his style is just predicated on, like he has good submissions in MMA, but a lot of it is like a function of um, anti-wrestling or, you know, his game where everyone's trying to stand up and he's working on them. And that would just not be like wrestling rules in ADCC don't work that way. They, Gordon Ryan talks about they operate much more under scrimmage rules and scrimmage wrestling, which is different. And um, obviously there's no ground and pound, which has facilitated a lot of what he likes to do. There's no cage. So my hunch is he'd probably be very, very good. I, I don't think he's like some kind of, oh, it only works in MMA and that is it kind of scenario. But – and they say he's good. They say he's really good. But my hunt, I, I'm skeptical that he would go in there and, and claim a medal. If Verdum and Nganu both win on Saturday, should they fight for an interim title since Stipe is, having, is saying he won't fight till the beer bug's gone? The beer bug? Is that the coronavirus? Oh, God. <laughs> okay, Dad. Uh, which might not be for a long time. I thought this fight should have been for an interim title. I've had a bit of a rethink on interim titles, which is to say, dude, everybody hates like, oh my God, interim titles. Inter People treat interim titles like a dude trying to bang your girlfriend. Like, I can't believe this fucking guy is here, you know? Like, it just, it just, I, I don't under, listen, here's how this goes. Is anybody, if you create an interim title in any weight class, is there really mainstream confusion about who's the actual champ? I mean, can we be serious about that for a second? There's just that, that to me, that claim is very much overblown. There's four, five, six sanctioning bodies in boxing. Totally different scenario, and there's way more weight classes. Granted, it's a slippery slope where if you begin to do more of that, you begin to create problems. I understand. Um, I'm not telling you that the solution I would offer you has no, doesn't, can't backfire. It quite clearly can. Here's the only point I'm trying to make. I keep seeing me like, oh, interim tiles are the scourge of humanity. Are they really? Is that what they are, or are you overstating it? Dude, the UFC has said on multiple occasions, both on and off the record, this is all verifiable fact, that the title itself, the main one, does not confer any status. It is merely a trophy that they hand out to the best fighter that night. That is it. Oh, it means that you're the man. No, it says that we think that's what it means because that's what we all say that it means. But in its actual form, it doesn't mean any of that. Interim title less than that. But here's the deal with both of them. They get you more money. So first of all, I keep hearing people say, I'm for fighters getting more money. Oh, yeah, you want the Ali Act? Well, I don't want the Ali Act. Okay. Uh, are you in favor of a union? Yeah, but there's not going to be one. Okay. Well, what about having a guy like the winner of Francis and the winner of Jair in their next fight, because they get the interim title this time, getting more money? Yeah, but that would muddy the waters. It's like, dude, every time people keep finding reasons, they say they want fighters to get more money, and then the way it comes up, they just never do. I, I argue with Brian Campbell about this on Monday. Oh, having the next negotiation. There, have you seen how negotiations go? We have the court documents now. There are no negotiations. Like, what, <laughs> what negotiation? It doesn't have. No, there it, it, it doesn't exist. They they think that it does. It doesn't. There is no leverage. 
this is one way to really get somebody some money. Here's the second part about it. It would relieve pressure on Stipe to come back because the winner, who the interim champ, could defend his title, I, uh, his interim title. And I know you're saying, oh, my God, this would be the worst idea in the world. Um, I don't really believe that that is true. It, it could be misused. I certainly agree with that. You would not want that to be the default position. But I'm just pointing out, like, if you've got a better idea to get fighters paid with existing tools right away, show me what they are. I'd love to see them. Hashtag, they don't exist. The other part here is um, these are clever ways in addition to getting fighters more money, again, on a very sort of small scale, but still important ones at the elite level, you would not have a situation where the champ would feel pressured and be labeled as some kind of like guy who ducks challenges by virtue of being a first responder. It would solve for a lot of those problems. And people just simply don't want to entertain this. Here is something you have to just accept if you're a fight fan. And a lot of them, I get that they're not going to want to do it. I completely get it. But getting fighters more money in many cases is not some simple task of just like, hey, let's give everyone a raise. It means you have to employ a set of policies or use instruments that are not necessarily or outright against fans' interest. And so as a fan, you had to be willing to say, I don't mind sacrificing a few things in order to make sure fighters get more money. If you are not willing to say that, chances are you are not actually in favor of getting them more money. Um, you might think that you are, uh, and you might have good intentions, but in terms of existing instruments to get them a higher wage, I just see people constantly saying they don't want it. 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 Or go do this or go do that. These like incredibly real, unrealistic things that don't exist. There's just always a reason to not pay them. Always. At some point, you just have to kind of accept maybe having a little bit of a, a very, very minor lack of clarity in a weight class on occasion to get a guy more money is not the end of the world. That's just my view. Uh, seeing how it's... Seeing how close John Jones's last fights were against explosive athletes with raw power, could Rumble be the guy to get it done? You know, never say never, but we haven't seen how he looks back, first of all. And second of all, if you, again, I'll say the thing about John is, you know, he's obviously got a dynamic series of weapons, and you don't want to take that away from him, but his defense is what really sets him apart. He is hard to hit. He is hard to hurt. He is hard to find any sustained offense on. And so Big Rumble might have, you know, one of those shots that puts his lights out one time. But, you know, Rumble's not built necessarily for a fight over the long haul. And well, he's got big power, certainly, but it's going to be hard to land on John cleanly. And even when you do, he's got a pretty good chin. So I'm skeptical of that claim or, you know, the idea that that could be true. A lot of people seem to be, seem, think that Masvidal beats Conor easily, but I think McGregor has a good shot at winning. Yeah, I don't know if Masvidal beats Conor easily, but I think Masvidal certainly got more ways to win. How do you assess the rise of these champ champs as far as pursuit of GOAT status goes? So Hudo, for example, is in the conversation despite the fact that he snuck past DJ in a, this person's view, bad split decision, then caught a starving, dying Dillashaw, then headbutted Mirage <laughs> to become champ champ. These are not necessarily the... Fairest ways to assess this. Connor beat Chad Mendes, who came in on a week's notice, sparked Aldo in one strike, uh, and then took out Alvarez. DC caught a blinded Stipe with a great shot, but again, never really showed. 
Like in all these cases, like you think these guys all got there by cheating or accident. This person writes, this sounds like I'm hating. Yeah, because you are. These guys have great skills and are amazing fighters, but all the victories require some semblance of luck. Dude, that's just the fight game. And without belts, these resumes come close to the likes of DJ, GSP, Jones, or Silva, who reign supreme in their own right. Yeah, so that's the big one. It's like, to what extent does um, jumping weight classes compare to standing a post? I've been over this a number of times. The, the, the two-weight class achievement is very, very, very significant and interesting. I'm not as... And again, it's going to depend on the person and the context and their resume and a host of other factors. I'll just say, in general, longevity in a competitive weight class where you retain championships year over year versus jumping up one night and having a great moment. Again, your sense of this is a little bit on the jaundice side. Uh, I tend to take the longevity as a significant, a much more significant and difficult uh, uh, feat to pull off. That's We can have a debate about that, but that's how I see it. So... Um, how do you weigh that? How do you weigh somebody who had 10 years like Jones versus someone like Cormier? Granted, they fought, so you can kind of adjudicate that one. But let's say they never had, and he was just a champion while the guy was gone that went up to heavyweight and beat everyone there. You'd be like, well, how do you do that? How do you assess that? There might be people who legitimately believe in that case Cormier was just better. Um, I think we need more stats to help us assess the relative value of a particular victory. And... Um, the value of a particular campaign. And until we have that, it's going to make assessing like, what's the value of this win versus these four? And it's really difficult to do. I just know as a task, I'm much more impressed with what GSP was able to do than what Cejudo. I'm much more impressed with what Silva was able to do than um, even DC. And DC has done some pretty incredible things and so on and so forth. So every time you find one of those, to me, I just know year over year over year over year over year what they're able to do is so significant that having a great night, while important, you know, just not the same kind of thing. Like, I mean, just imagine, GSP was able to beat Bisping. Who else in that middleweight division do you think he could have beaten if he had kept going? And the answer is probably some, but maybe not a whole lot. Whereas in welterweight, he was able to beat a whole lot. Um, but that tells you, you can have a great night. Can you have a great campaign? That it are just much, 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 much more difficult things to do, I think. Your mileage may vary. Hi, Luke. I was wondering why no one seems to be talking about a rematch between Dustin and Connor. With Tony and Justin in a fight and Nurmagomedov in Russia, I feel that would be a great fight, as well as give the fans justification for Connor having a title fight. I love that fight, and you say no one's talking about it. Poirier's been looking for it for a while. Um, you know, why isn't there people beyond him and some others saying it? I don't know. You know, because the first fight was just, it, it, that was going to be the guy that was going to bring a stop to the McGregor hype train and all that kind of stuff. And then it just ended very quickly. And so I think folks think it would just be the same thing over again. Maybe. I would love to see it because I think it'd be a very different fight. You might still favor Connor, and I wouldn't argue with that, but I do think it'd be a different fight. And who knows? Poirier is just so much better now. So we'd have to see, but um, I just I tend to think that they want bigger names and more exciting matchups. You know, the BMF could be kind of territory. Nate Diaz. 
Why are the majority of people telling me that Donald Trump knows exactly what he's doing and also have wild conspiracies about Corona? Have we reached the breaking point where it comes to mistrust in our government? No, we've not reached a breaking point. Breaking point would look much worse than this. Yeah, there's a lot of fucking dumbasses out there. I know that. I was telling folks on Twitter today, I went to uh, Home Depot this morning. I had to get some equipment, work on some home improvement projects. And they, uh, it said, no mask, no entry. No problem. Put on a mask. Everyone in there had masks. And I was looking around. I was like, wow, I really am glad everyone has masks here. Because this whole thing, like, I mean, when you lined up to the register, everyone was kind of keeping six feet. And, you know, Home Depot was fucking huge. So, like, it's not like you're, like, assholes to elbows up in there. But people were not keeping six feet apart, in, you know, in the aisles. And I had to go. I, had to, I was looking for a particular kind of uh, um, wood screw. And... And I was looking for the particular size, and so I had to get help with it, and because uh, I couldn't find the one I needed, and you know, handing back and forth. I mean, I had hand sanitizer. I bathed in that shit. But you get my point. Like, you know, people are still not exactly keeping six feet. So I'm like, if you read some of the more recent information about masks, it's like if both, if all the parties have masks on, it has a substantial impact um, potentially on reducing coronavirus transmission. And. Uh, and it's a private establishment. And like, and like, honestly, what are you, are you going to like, are you going into Home Depot for five, six hours? Like breathing in a mask sucks, but I get it, but it's not that bad. You know, boy, you'd have people, you, people act like, <laughs> like there's Sophie's choice or some shit, you know, it's like settle down, settle down, Brenda. It is not that serious. Just put the fucking mask on and, and go get your, uh, artificial Christmas tree for fuck's sake. All right. Final predictions for the main and co-main. My predictions are shitty. I don't do them anymore. You don't want to hear them. It, they'll be bad. You know, I, I, I mean, I'm kind of leaning towards Tony, but dude, listen, the future is largely unknowable, and it's unknowable for very good reasons. Just revel in that. Just revel in how unknowable. Like, there are times when I've had hunches, and I've broadcasted that hunch, and the hunch was right, and I fucking, you know, was, 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 was um, paraded that fact. And then there's been times where I had a hunch and I thought it was right and it was wrong and I tried to fucking hide that shit because, you know, in the at first you feel like you can pick up on stuff and you can, of course, like investigating these things and trying. There's nothing wrong with them. But I'll never forget the, the night where the UFC had three nights in a row, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night fights. I got all the fights right on Thursday, literally the entire card. I got all the, rights, the fights right on Friday, literally the entire card. And then on Saturday, I think I got like half of them right, okay? And, bro, you would have thought I had I had the worst predictions on earth. I got roasted. I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, I'm not saying I did well on the third night, which was the most important of the nights. I get roast. You know, this was not a great effort. Hello, I just aced two events in a row. Doesn't matter. They still fucking murder you for it. So, aside from the fact that there's no way to win at it unless you really dig into the details, um, they're for fun. But the future is really just, it's very, very unknowable for any kind of, you just don't know what variables are there that are going to affect this. So, nah. Is there any chance the UFC will be sold in order to, to solve Endeavor's financial problems? No chance, not, not anytime soon, I don't imagine. And I, I would argue probably, no. They are going to sell their share in Epic Games, which might be good for 100 mil, which would be very, very important for them, but that's about it. All right, let's get to some of your uh, paid questions here. Uh, as always, 
Subscribe, bitches. Right? Thumbs up. The whole nine yards. By the way, what time does Home Depot close? Because your boy has to get back there. Very professional of me to do this right here. Your boy has to get back there because the things he bought don't fucking work. Oh, they'll be open for a while. Okay. All right. Let's get to your questions, shall we? Name and pick a team to be number one. What the fuck question is this? Name and pick a team to be number one. Name a UFC Washington team. The Washington blank heavyweight, middleweight, lightweight, femme, bantam. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> uh, that's funny. No, I don't know what the fuck that means. Sorry. All right. Uh, what do you think about media like John Morgan and Helen Yee being there for UFC 249? Seems to me there's nothing essential about them. Uh, no, probably not. There's nothing essential about them at all, I would say. However, I talked to John Morgan today. He had a good point. Uh, this is a big historic moment for UFC, and they want to be there. There's a story to tell there. I would agree. To me, having a small handful of controllable media, when I say controllable, I mean their, their space and whereabouts and testing. Any more than what you're already doing does not pose a significant risk. Um, again, that you're, whatever the risk is, whatever the risk is without the media, having a handful of them there does not substantially add to that. So I don't really have an issue with it when you think about it in those terms. Better underdog bet, Rosenstruck or Gaethje? Let me see what the odds are. Rosenstruck is at plus 235, Gaethje at plus 177. Because of the nature of the odds, I would go Rosenstruck. Strike, however you say it. Uh, you, just got, you, got, you win more if, if he wins. And I think his chance of winning is decent. For the UFC, does the reward truly outweigh the risk for 249? Just imagine the negative press the UFC would face for a positive case or worse. Is the reward for being the first sport back worth it? Yeah, it could be. Listen, there's a lot of different ways it could play out. I mean, if you are first and you do pull it off and you are able to develop a set of best practices and you could be an, an, a sports industry leader, yeah, that could be really beneficial for you. I mean, and not really for you, but for other actors in the space potentially. Like, there's a network effect where this could be uh, substantially helpful. I don't take that lightly. I don't think anybody should. Um, the only issue that remains is like, you, you indicated it, if something were to go wrong, and I don't know what the risk for that would be exactly, none of us really do, uh, that could be potentially calamitous. But what would that look like exactly? And here's the other part about it. Like, if a fighter got coronavirus after they got home and they didn't spread it to anybody else and they lived, is that is that terrible? I don't know that it is. It's not great. Um, but if somebody got it and then gave it to somebody they live with who might be diabetic and there was a hospitalization or worse, that would be really fucking bad. The question you have to ask yourself is what is that risk? Here's the only part of, the part of me about me that I just don't, here's the part that I don't get. Am I particularly worried that the people competing on Saturday are coronavirus free? My hunch is that they're probably, that's not the, I mean, no one really knows, but that's not really my concern. 
But these airlines have become like vectors for this. And they're flying home and they're and they don't have any tests to give the people when they get home. That to me is a little bit of a risk. That's the part of this I'm like mm, that's a weird one. I don't quite understand that exactly. Should Tony try wrestling Justin to gas him out? Justin said in an interview before he doesn't wrestle because it makes him tired. Uh, yeah, but even then you're risking close contact. I mean, if you're able to make contact with him, like physical contact, and then um, you're able to get in and out of those spaces without significant physical punishment, sure. But if in trying to do that, A, you tire yourself out, and B, he begins to bomb on you, well, then you have a bit of a problem. So it, it is going to be situationally dependent. How dangerous is Oliveira to the top four lightweights? All right, so the top four lightweights are Tony Ferguson, Poirier, McGregor, and Gaethje. If any of them are not on their game, he is capable of beating them. But I think that those four all beat them, beat him um, if they're on their game. So to answer your question, I take him very seriously as a threat, but you're talking about the very four best lightweights. They should win that fight. How could UFC move away from the pay-per-view model? They would have to get a television rights deal that made it worth their while. Or they'd have to have some kind of financial windfall from Fight Pass such that they wouldn't need it anymore. But it's still an extraordinarily lucrative um, way to make money for them. And it always has been. It's always been the dominant model. Someone says, love your content. You support an interim heavyweight title fight because it gets the fighters paid, which I get. But I would counter with your response via fighter A during COVID, just pay them more. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know what? But what would you rather? Well, it's, it's difficult, right? Because at scale, you actually got more fighters paid that way. Versus individually, you might have matchups where that one fighter gets a lot more. In in general, I'll just say this. That was, I thought, a necessary step. I think a lot of people did. A necessary step, like just pay them what they were owed. for, like Let's say for the UFC London card, right? Just pay them what they're owed. Just, you know, give them a stipend to live on, something. And then, uh, and then we can go from there. But in general, I don't think relying on charity versus what someone is contracted to pay or you know required by some force of law to pay is ever uh, they're not equivalent uh, for me always whatever the requirement is is going to be best um, someone says congrats on success what success <laughs> oh I feel I feel ugh. I feel like I am just treading water most days. Um, Zach Bice, how long do your Redskins get good? Did you, you all see this? First time since 1982, the Skins have zero primetime games. Fuck them, too, is what I say. Listen, they, if Haskins plays the way he did at the very end of the season, who knows, last season, he might be really good. Chase Young appears to be, again, an incredible talent. They got rid of... Um, you know, the, the, when they addressed the whole left tackle situation, I guess. Although you lost. Well, they didn't even have him last season, so who cares? Trent Williams. There's a lot of different moving pieces that they feel like we've gotten in, 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 you know, uh, better with. And Ron Rivera seems to be doing well. And there's a lot of reasons for optimism. Listen, that team starts winning. 
we can talk about how they deserve to get on primetime. But they sucked ass. I don't mind. Yeah, oh, the 13 of the games are at 1 p.m.? Wow. How am I going to sleep through the night? Oh, I know. I'll actually sleep through the night because I don't have to stay up late to watch. And every time they played on Monday Night Football, they got the shit beaten out of them. So I didn't care. I saw people being like, that's bullshit. Why? Why is it bullshit? They, the team blows, and it's better for us. Rank these. Head PE, Seven Dust, Rage Against the Machine, Papa Roach, System of a Down. Cut my... <laughs> Papa Roach ain't for me, y'all. Cut my life into pieces. Fucking... Uh, let's go. System of a... Rage Against the Machine, one. System of a Down, two. I'm just going to rank what you gave me. Rage Against Machine 1, System of a Down 2. I'll go 7 Dust 3, Head PE. And then I will go Papa Roach. I would put fucking... What's the, what's the band that goes, Somebody once told me the word. Uh, hey now, you're an all-star. What's the name of that band? Where they get real bitter on people and on Twitter? I'd put them ahead of Papa Roach. Do you listen to the genre of power violence? If not, check out the record Unforgivable by Weekend Nachos. People keep giving me recommendations, and it's like, I mean, I guess it's related to stuff like this or whatever, but it's I listen to it, and I'm always like, I'm not into this. I mean, her name is Weekend Nachos. Is this some of the troll job, probably? You think Gaethje fixing his vision has helped him lower his strikes absorbed per minute? My guess was before he took those punches to measure encounter with a big hook possible it's a great question possible the other part about it is uh he's able to he's just got more sophisticated attacks which could be related to his vision of course where he'll come in and switch stances on his entry and then bomb on him with a big hook over the top um could be that that's a function of his vision could also just be a, a cleaning up of technique or a combination of the two right so it's you usually whenever you see a big improvement it's those two things but to be clear about the strikes absorbed per minute, the other part here is he's just been in, in shorter fights, and he's been the one dictating in the shorter fights. So part of it is just a function of that versus, I mean, the technical improvements or his vision improvement play a role, but so do the nature of the fights that he's had uh, in terms of their in their length and the, and the context in there. Do you think there is a high likelihood Nganu Rosenstrike will be a repeat? I know I've said his name five different ways. Will be a repeat of Nganu Lewis. People forget Rosenstrike's fight with Overing was extremely lackluster until the finish. Could be. Certainly you're going to see. Dude, Rosenstrike struck whatever. Jair, let's call him Jair, is a very good striker. He's got, I think, 80 plus kickboxing matches, something like that. So there's a real possibility that that could happen. Um,. He could be cautious, but, you know, I've been talking to Eric Nixick a lot over Extreme Couture. They think he's locked on with his cardio. They think he's locked on with a game plan. They think he's locked on in so many ways. Um, I, I don't think he'll leave it that way. I don't. Could just be blind optimism. I mean, I think you have a reason for concern, but I'm going to say no. How can I get better at podcasting? How to not mumble, stutter, and lose track of focus because of anxiety. Also, why don't you have more sponsors on your live chat? I don't know. Why don't, ha why don't I have a lot of things that I should probably have at this stage of my career? I don't know the answer to that, but it's not, 
It's not in the cards for your boy. That's, I guess, the answer. How can I get better at podcasting? I had a stutter as a child, and I had to go to speech therapy to get better about it. So the answer is, one, professional assistance to the extent that is available to you is a great way to get some help. Uh, But also, it seems kind of obvious, but a lot of people don't put it together like this. If you would like to get better at talking, you should do more projects that require you to talk. And not just talking to your friends or talking to your mom or talking to your boss, but a separate kind of project that requires the delivery of an argument, the explanation of an idea, the, the painting of a mental picture, something like that. That is what you would have to work on. And this is why I would say you really want to work on this with someone who can help with the development of this in a professional setting. But it can be done because I had a stutter as a kid. Star Trek Voyager episode predicted MMA would be done in an empty room but beamed everywhere. Who the fuck watches Star Trek Voyager anymore? I watched Star Trek Next Generation as a kid. Lieutenant Worf was the shit, but Voyager, that's for you incels. (laughs) Uh, Francis wins by Goga Plata. Does the hype explode or is the world too baffled? Both. Both. Is there an inherent benefit in mapping out one striking game system akin to the way BJJ practitioners do? Is there a parity present or is striking and grappling too different? Yeah, the very best ones do that. I've been, I've, not all of them, but there are, I know several UFC uh, fighters who are you know, predominantly striking based who do this, who have the whole thing. I've not written down a piece of paper per se, but they've got a, they've always got a, ma- a mental map and then they always talk about the routes they're going to take. And it's not in basic detail, like critically granular detail. They do it all the time. What does your dad think of your show with Brian? Not a fucking thing. Did I, <laughs> I literally got an email from my dad. This is a true story. I got an email from my dad two days ago, two days ago. And he literally, I swear to God, he goes, uh, to what extent are the layoffs at Vox going to impact your role there? And I was like, well, good news, Pop. I haven't worked there in a long time. <laughs> they don't give a fuck, bro. They don't give a fuck. Uh, so, you know what he thinks of it? He's like, oh, is the fucking check still clearing? You know, do you, are, you, are you paying your mortgage on time? Okay, sweet. Right? I mean, that's, that's the extent. It's just, you know. And there have been times, man, where like, you know... Um, so, okay, that's not, I'm, I, when I interviewed Andrew Yang, everyone paid attention to that. Uh, or, you know, things that are really off, the, basically nothing to do with what I do. <laughs> They'll pay it like, oh, and I interviewed John McCain. I interviewed John McCain when I went to the uh, Capitol Hill and he was there with this, um, when UFC and Top Rank and even Viacom were together to talk about this Cleveland Clinic brain study and, you know how they all were supportive of it, and John McCain showed up and said a few words. I was able to interview John McCain there. They watched that, you know. But if it's anything <laughs> sports or MMA-related, they're like the, they're, they're waiting for the clown at the Apollo to get the hook to 
to pull them out, bro. They don't care. Oh, this is a tough one. Uh, what books can you recommend on U.S. foreign policy and U.S. war policy moving forward? Um, well, that's a very broad question about a number of different um, theaters. Uh, but there is one that I read, which might be a little bit um, more to your liking. You should read one of my favorite writers he writes for the new yorker but this dude's a bad motherfucker man like if you looked at him you'd be like this nerd's a bad motherfucker yeah dude y'all know who dexter filkins is bro dexter filkins is the man so dexter filkins if you read one of his books or one of his essays i can't remember God, i've read so much of his stuff i can never replace it anymore he talked about uh he, this dude when uh when the u.s forces invaded iraq in 2004 and everything fell, and there was this disarray in between. And this is be right before, um, this is when there was like a lot of uneasiness, and before like local militias had really begun to take over. This was when like Jerry Bremer was still just fucking things up to a pretty remarkable degree, like all the bad municipal planning, and you know, and then the the, the when they got rid of the bath party and all that kind of stuff. This dude went to Fallujah uh, in a coffee shop without security <laughs> and he like he writes about like the fucking looks he got remember that dude nicholas burke who just showed up there and then got beheaded it was right around that time a little bit before it like not much like like a matter of weeks or months and he's, he shows him in fallujah sitting in a coffee shop and everyone in the shop is like doing one of these numbers to him and eventually uh i think he had a friend there who was like okay i'm not going to say anything alarming to you we need to go and we need to get up and leave right now they're going to kill you. Uh, and so they did. But uh, that dude will just do and go to the most dangerous places. Anyway, that's not the reason to like him. He has a, he has a book called The Forever War, which is um, a masterpiece, essentially, of understanding. the. There's a lot to it. It focuses, obviously, on the U.S. efforts post 9-11, but how it has, we have created a sort of a state and military apparatus to have this unending security state on alert in attack in multiple theaters at all times and about the essentially the drain on um you know not really u.s resources but about how it ultimately impacts uh, foreign policy in that particular part of the world and in other places as well and how it has this sort of like it is this built-in perpetual motion machine of 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 just creating more conflict to keep this beast alive the forever war by dexter filkins give it a look dexter filkins is an unbelievable guy all right uh i believe calvin cater has the best boxing for mma at featherweight what fighters at each weight class have the best boxing all right let's look at the rankings here best boxing at lightweight you could go connor right but he's not the only one uh at welterweight oh actually i skipped a couple didn't i so you can go at flyweight i'm not really sure brandon moreno i guess at um, at bantamweight, Jan or Sandhagen, featherweight got to be Holloway Volkanovski or neck and neck, right? And and Chansung Jung is up there too. Again, I'll go Connor for lightweight, for welterweight, I'll go uh, Jorge for sure. I'll go Jorge for that's not pure striking, just boxing. For middleweight, I will go. 
Maybe Shabazian? It might be. I mean, I'm skipping over Adesanya, but maybe Shabazian? Shabaz, I, I, Adesanya is the best striker. We're talking about pure boxing. Maybe Adesanya. Uh, at 205, Donald Ray has got pretty good boxing. Um, Miocic probably for the top one, but we'll see how big Francis looks. Amanda Nunes has the best of virtually everything in that weight class. Um, Zhang Wiley, I'll put... Uh, well, you know what? Better boxing. Yeah, I'll say Zhang Wiley. And then Shevchenko is just, you know, far and away ahead of everybody. Luke, who do you identify more with? Human or werewolf? Great question. The answer is werewolf. It is certainly werewolf. Lichens, bitches. Have you ever listened to Disembowelment? Well, you motherfuckers don't understand what I like. Okay. Really good Australian death metal. If not, I recommend Transcendence into the Peripheral. Okay. All right. I'll, I will not listen to that. Would you consider doing a separate channel for content such as the deadlift record you recently did? Not just Strongman, but non-MMA-related stuff. Um, yeah. So here's the deal. I'll make a promise with you guys. I don't know what's going to happen. Everything on my jobs are going for now quite well if I get laid off from one of them I am going to open up a Patreon like the next day and just lean into this channel with all kinds of extra content um, but I don't I just don't have time for more of it I think there's a market for it but I don't have time to nurture all these different things so you're talking about a separate channel I would do a separate channel and then have all kinds of non MMA stuff on it but it would require me to lose one of my jobs in order for that to happen. So I, re I hope I never have to open up. I mean, there might be other circumstances where I open a Patreon, but I'm thinking in the immediate sense, if I do that, it'll be under those circumstances. But I am going to do the Julius Maddox 800-pound be bench press attempt in June. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, and then lastly, without a crowd, do we get a better Cerrone? I don't think the crowd is a function, but... Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I didn't, th I didn't think about it that way. In reference to earlier answers, maybe. He's also kind of a veteran. Like, do I think the crowd's hyping him up? He was even saying, well, the last one, like two days before, he was kind of struggling. Uh, it's a great question. Sometimes the best questions don't have the best answers. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, all right. All right. All right. So let's do this. I appreciate everybody watching one more time. Let's do this. One more time. Let's do this. Thank you guys so much for watching. Really appreciate it. Um, there will be a post-fight show tomorrow. So please be on the lookout for that. Um, yeah, I will see you guys then. I really appreciate everyone who has been so supportive over these last few weeks and continues to be. Please spread this around. Share the gospel of this live chat. And... Um, your patronage is appreciated, all right? All right, until next time, stay frosty, bitches. Appreciate y'all.